yesterday, Sativa T, desperate to, as <laughs> I could go from that beautiful singing to uh, these political battles, but <laughs> someone's got to do it. So, Sativa T was desperately trying to persuade her, uh, you could say her stepson, Bhishma, who's actually older than her, was managing. Accept the childless widows of her son, Vishitravirya. And Bhishma adamantly refused. He wouldn't hear of it, but finally he said that there, there is another way. And it's interesting that in all these situations, people have to refer to Dharma. Something has to be done according to Dharma. Uh, nowadays, let's say if someone is not criminal type, and let's say you're trying to deal with some issue, some problem, social, whatever, uh, in, in a community, then you have to look for some legal means. And if someone proposes something, uh, the other person says, well, is that legal? Can we actually do that? And so um, when the law is actually sacred, when the law is not simply, well, we have to follow the law, we can get in trouble, or you know, something will happen. <laughs> It's not merely an issue of avoiding problems, but the law is, as stated in, in one uh, Sanskrit verse in the Bhagavatam, dharmam hi sakshad bhagavat pranitam. A dharma is that which is literally personally brought forth by the Lord. So in a sense, the law of the universe, the law of God. So it's, it's even more serious than just avoiding legal troubles or staying out of jail or avoiding the fine. So, um, Bhishma said to Sakyavati, there is a dharma. There is a dharma which can be applied here. And that is that in cases like this, where a dynasty is at stake, and there is no one to, there is no male heir, and no way of begetting a male heir, uh, a kshatriya, which is the feminine form, kshatriya is the warrior class, of course, and the feminine so that a Kshatriya, or a lady from the royal class, may beget a child with a pure Brahman, a pure, pure-hearted Brahman who has no lust and so on. It, it was permitted, and then according to Dharma, that child becomes a child of the mother, of course, and of the deceased father. I mean, if you think nowadays, uh, we, there are things like artificial insemination, where regardless of the biological father, the child does become legally the child of the parents who arrange for that insemination. So, either in modern times or even back in ancient times, there were practical situations that had to be dealt with. In fact, there's one category which occurs in the texts, which is apadharma. Apa means emergency or crisis. And so the example I always give is if, let's say, you wake up one day and see your neighbor's house is on fire, and the adults are all gone, there's children sleeping in the house, so you go in there, whatever it takes, you have to you know, break through the windows, kick the door down, whatever, and then take the children to safety. Let's say there's not a fire in the house, and you kick your neighbor's door down and take the children. 
so again, uh, there was this special category called apadharma, emergency dharma. So Bhishma, uh, and, and then you find statements in Sanskrit, for example, that uh, someone should never do this anapadi, if it's not an emergency. That's like a typical statement they'll make. So anyway, so Bhishma suggested this dharma that uh, Ambika and Ambalika can beget a legitimate heir to the Kuru throne with a pure Brahman. At that point, Sajivati, with great embarrassment, uh, took Bhishma. She said she had to tell him something which was extremely private and confidential. And then for the first time, she revealed that before she married his father, she had another child. Which, you know, that can be kind of a tough conversation. Especially, again, in that, in that civilization. And so, for the first time, she had me deal with anyone. Parashara knew it, but he was probably you know, some of the planet by then. And, of course, the ass knew it. The son. And when the ass left his mother, he was not completely insensitive to the fact that this is my mother. And so when he left his mother, he told her that if you ever need me, if you ever need me, just remember me, and I will appear to you. Because he's, yeah, so he can, he can do things like that. Just remember me, and I will, I will be there. And so at this point, Sajibati, with considerable embarrassment, revealed that she had another son. And that this son was not only a Brahmin, he was the greatest of all Brahmins on earth. And so what better choice to perpetuate the Guru dynasty? So Bhishma thought this is an excellent idea. He ultimately was happy to hear that he had such an exalted uh, brother. And um, so Sajivati in meditation remembered this great son and he instantly appeared before her. And he explained, uh, she explained what the problem was and he proposed solution. Now it's quite interesting that at this point, Yas told his mother something which she did not accept or follow and that caused a lot of trouble. Yas told his mother that uh, first of all, the obvious, that the consciousness of the father and the mother will determine the quality of the child. And that's sort of a, a, a general principle in conception that, uh, I don't want to, uh, anyway, the consciousness of the father and the mother together at the moment of conception will actually draw a, a particular soul to them. That's why, uh, you know, sort of like a drunken uh, whatever is not the very best way of conceiving. So, therefore, Vyas said that these ladies who have just undergone a traumatic experience, they lost their young husband, and Vyas, I mean, he was not, he was not like ugly or anything, but he did live up in the mountains. He, and he was, um, he was a sage, he was an ascetic, he have seen in India, or at least you must have seen pictures of these, you know, say, I don't know if he had dreads or anything, but, but Vyas 
And these girls have been used to palace life and all kinds of finery and etiquette, so and so. Therefore, Vyas said, it would be very wise to let these girls take one year off and engage in a type of uh, vrata or vow, yoga, meditation, to, so that they can come to the highest possible consciousness, the highest possible consciousness to guarantee that the conception will produce a uh, glorious king for the Kurus. That was actually good advice. And, uh, but Satyavati didn't take it. Her reasoning was that um, we can't wait. That uh, the Kuru dynasty can't go on without a king. Now, even if they did beget a king, of course, that would, it would take a while for the kid to grow, but um, the, the text, the Mahabharata mentions that at that time, other kingdoms were taking advantage of the crisis in the Kuru dynasty. Uh, some of them were sort of starting to steal Kuru lands, sort of violate the borders, and uh, perhaps even more seriously, that there were certain, you could say, evil kings. Just like now in the world, there are some world leaders who are really kind of like bad guys, and everybody knows it. And so, uh, those types of kings were starting to oppress uh, their neighbors, starting to uh, do, yeah, take advantage of the fact that for the first time in history, there was no Kuru monarch to ensure peace and security in the world. So Sajimati felt the, the, the pressure of this. He asked that one more year will make a huge difference, and it may make a big difference in, in what we get in terms of children, because I can only do my part as a father. I can't get as far as the mother's consciousness. That's, that's her consciousness. But Sajimati insisted we should do it now. And then there's a scene where she goes into her daughters-in-law one by one and talks to them and says, you know, hi, I have something I have to tell you. And, and she has to persuade them. She has to persuade these queens to accept this, to, to have a child uh, with Vyasa, who was a great sage, but, you know, perhaps not, you know, something that they'd always, the guy they'd always dreamed of. So, um, so she does talk to them, and they, I mean, seeing the situation, here they are. These queens, they, they feel the responsibility that they have as queens to somehow ensure the preservation of the dynasty. And with some trepidation, with some anxiety, they agree. So uh, it begins with the older sister. It begins with the older sister, Ambika. Uh, and again, I can't help wondering what the effect was on these women psychologically. Not only did their husband die, young husband, but seeing what happened sister, Amba. So, and here they are living in this Kuru kingdom, so you can imagine kind of there's all, there are all kinds of anxieties in their life and facing the, uh, the danger of their, the dynasty and so on. And so Vyas comes in and Amba is shocked, really, because, I mean, Vyas is this powerful, luminous sage, but he has, you know, his long hair, and he, and he didn't he didn't put on a, you know, a, a tuxedo or anything just for Ampa. Ambika, I mean, he still, Ambika, he still has his forest clothes, just maybe like, you know, the, the sages used to wear deer skin, 
not by killing a deer, it would just take the skin of a dead deer because deer skin was supposed to keep uh, carnivorous beasts away. And so, so anyway, so dressed like this, and um, and it, it so startled her, and she really, because again, she was still grieving for her own husband. Is that close enough? Yeah. She was still grieving for her own husband, so this whole situation was kind of like really too much for her. And so she submitted, but she closed her eyes. It was too much for her, so she just closed her eyes and just tried to get through it. She didn't want to see it, what was going on. And uh, so when Vyastev came out of her room and Satyavati very anxiously asked him, because he was a sage that knew what was going to happen, like, you know, was it successful? And Vyasa soberly told his mother that Ambika will have a son, but the son will be blind. Because she closed her eyes and she, she refused to look at me. And so, and that's actually what happened. And, and, that's, uh, and that's how Dhritarashtra was born. Dhritarashtra, the eldest of the, uh, this new generation of Kuru nobles. So Satyavati was so devastated and she said that a blind king cannot rule this kingdom. And to understand why she said this, we have to remember that um, in those days, it wasn't like nowadays that a president or prime minister declares war and then sits in a secure bunker and watches it on television. That was not the system back then. The idea was that if a ruler declared war, he had to go first. He was the first to risk his life, which is sort of a natural restraint on warfare. So, and that's why Sekhmati, it was very much literally a hands-on thing. The king had to personally go out and inspect the kingdom, personally see that everything was going properly. If there was any difficulty, the king had to go first. So, therefore, Sekhmati said, a blind king cannot rule this kingdom. So you have to give us another child. So then it was arranged that Vyas would beget a child with the youngest of the sisters, uh, Ambalita. She knew what happened to her sister, so this girl was going to keep her eyes open. <laughs> and when Vyas went into her, she kept her eyes open, but she was literally sort of like, um, how do you say it? She was just like, sort of like, she was so unnerved by the whole situation that she turned white. She just became pale and she just kept her eyes open and, 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 and went through it. And then Vyas said that, Vyas told his mother afterwards that yes, that, that this child will be very qualified but he'll be very pale because she turned pale. So it's interesting how each, how the reaction of the mother influenced the child. And the word pandu means pale. So, uh, then Pandu was born. And so Satyavati was thinking like, let's just, let's just go for a perfect one here. So she was, you know, she had this ambition. And it's interesting how, if you look at these royal families, and this is something that comes out in many stories, they were, there was a type of, um, there was this really strong desire to get, to get sons, to get kings, to get rulers, and, and uh, to fortify the dynasty. It was a very pragmatic thing. So she was anxious to get another son. And so she 
said uh, to Ambika, again, the older of the surviving sisters, that one more time. And Ambika, in her emotional state, didn't, couldn't fight with her mother-in-law, but what she, she talked to, she called a very beautiful maidservant and told her, you take my place, and told her, you take my place, because it was, the whole thing was just too much for her. So Vyas came in again for a third time, this is of course, I mean, this is taking some time, a year or two. Vyas came in again, and he immediately understood, this is a maidservant. Uh, but, well, interestingly, this girl actually very much appreciated Vyas. This is an interesting commentary. This is, of course, a common theme in much of world literature, how sometimes someone in a so-called lower position actually has the best character. And so in this case, this <coughs> maidservant, who practically is unnamed in the text, she had great respect and appreciation for Vyas, <coughs> and, and for the first time, Vyas was really treated with all of the consideration that he deserved. And because this girl was so wise in appreciating the great sage, her son uh, was the wisest of all, Vidura. And, uh, but being Vidura being born from the maidservant was not really in line for the throne. But uh, he was the wisest. In fact, his name Vidura, the vid, is the same vid from which you get the word beta, knowledge. So, that was Vidura. At that point, Vyas said, I, I think we'll just sort of call it a season here. And um, so Vyas went back to the mountains, and now there were three Kuru princes. So Pandu, despite his, uh, you could say, the uh, complexion issue, that was not a major thing. And so he became the king. Pandu and it was great rejoicing. Now, Bhishma was a great warrior. In fact, even many years later, it's not that he was too old to fight, because many decades later, many, many years later, he'll become the great general of the battle of Kurukshetra. So you could ask the question that, well, why was it a crisis in the Kuru dynasty? Why were Kuru lands being stolen? What was his problem? If Bhishma was there, why couldn't he just take care of it and govern until the king came? And if, if you think about this logically, it must be the case that Bhishma, in his vow never to become a king, could not independently exercise governmental power. In other words, there had because as soon as as soon as a Kuru prince was born, even as soon as there was a Kuru baby, I mean obviously the baby wasn't gonna baby Vijayarashtra wasn't gonna govern anything. But somehow or other, the existence of a Kuru heir legitimized Bhishma's role as a servant to the throne, and therefore he could act. And so simply by the birth of these Kuru heirs, Bhishma, in a sense, according to the nature of his vows and all the technical, legal, political entailments, uh, he could again act. And so the Kurus again began to reassert themselves, and there are descriptions of how all the kingdom rejoiced to know that again, that the Kuru dynasty had been saved. So, uh, Another very important point here, which will really determine the rest of the story, 
is that even though Pandu, even though Pandu was devoted to his older brother, his blind brother, and as we'll see later, really offered everything to him, whatever Pandu gained in terms of riches or treasure, he actually offered it to his older brother. So he was a very devoted younger brother. And yet Vitarastra never really got over the fact that even though you know he was the oldest son, he couldn't rule the kingdom. He uh, never really got over this. And it was kind of simmering below the surface. And, you know, he couldn't blame Pandu because Pandu was a perfect younger brother, but he definitely had, as we would say nowadays, serious issues with this. And these issues will come to the surface in the near future. So there's Virastra. He was very powerful. His body was very powerful, but he couldn't rule his blind. And, and Pandu was uh, kind of like... Pandu was this really powerful guy. In fact, uh, one interesting... One interesting incident, which to me really shows how powerful Pandu was. Uh, he had to marry at a certain point. He had to have a, a queen. And so they heard, the, uh, the Kuru heard that a great princess, and a very beautiful princess, of a neighboring dynasty, the Yadu dynasty, uh, was going to hold a Swayambara, which we've already talked about, the, the princess's own choice. She was a husband. In the south of Hastinapur. If you know the geography of India, if you imagine it's kind of something like roughly a diamond. And so north central, let's say where you know where Delhi is, and then just um, just a little bit, perhaps 80 miles or whatever, north east of Delhi was Hastinapur on the Ganges River. And so uh, the great kingdoms of the Mahabharata, a word on geography, are really the greatest kingdoms are based on, on the great rivers. Hastinapur is on the Ganges. So I'll try to do it so it makes sense from your point of view. Uh, okay, I'll do it backwards for me. So this is Hastinapur on the Ganges. And if you go south on the Ganges, uh, the next kingdom you come to is Panchala. And that's the kingdom of Draupadi, the kingdom of Drupada, and so on. And as you'll see later in the story, they're, they're very, very important. And, and from the earliest Vedic times, it was kind of a rivalry between the Kurus and the Panchalas. It's something like, if you know European history, the relationship between France and England. At times they're allies, at times they're war with each other, it just depends. And so it's sort of like England and France. And so down the Ganges is Panchala. Then on the Jamuna River, on the Jamuna River, which is uh, west. Okay, so for you, west. Here's the Ganges. And then just west is the Jamuna, both coming down from the Himalayan mountains. So if you follow, so the, the Jamuna River in the northern part belong to the Kurus, but if you go south, you come to the traditional kingdom of the Yadus, and that's the dynasty in which Krishna appeared. The capital of the Yadus was Mathura, and Krishna took birth in that city. And to this day, it's a, uh, and it's actually very close to Vrindavan, where Krishna lived. Anyway, that's the geography for now. But when Pandu went down to this Swayambara, this great Yadu princess named Kunti, she has an interesting story. Kunti is a very important figure in the Mahabharata, this queen. And uh, she becomes Pandu's queen, and she, she plays a very important role in the whole story. As a young girl, Kunti was actually born to a king, uh, Shurasena. But Shurasena had many children, and he had a very, very dear friend, another king named Kunti, uh, the male form of the 
was childless, and therefore, as an act of love for his friend, this other king, he said that I will give you, I, I, I'm, I'm having a child now, and I'll give you that child. So that you, and so he gave Kunti as, as a baby, as an infant, to this King Kunti, uh, who, of course, loved her very much and raised her, and therefore she was also called Kunti. This is the king of Kunti Boja. Actually, the king was Kunti Boja, and, and uh, Boja being a, a, a sub-branch of the other dynasty. Anyway, she, there's something very important about Kunti you should know, which is somewhat, I mean, somewhat analogous to what happened to Sachi Vati. And that is when Kunti, and, and no one knew about this, actually, no one knew about this, when Kunti was just a, little, a young girl, maybe, let's say, 11, 12, 13 years old, uh, a sage visited her father's kingdom, the kingdom of Kunti Bocha. And this sage was named Durvasa, which in Sanskrit kind of means like hardly dressed. Because I guess he sort of wandered around really well, or poorly dressed, Durvasa. So, or anyway, that means other things as well. So Durvasa was famous as, sometimes we do a lot of austerities, you can get a bad temper. It's like some people that, it's like you think about if you're hungry and you can't eat or there's no food or for some reason you choose not to eat, you can become irritable. And so this is a famous aspect of this ancient culture, which we see even today, that some people who don't have their material desires satisfied are kind of very austere and sometimes be a little irritable. And so Durvasa was such a very irritable sage. And if you didn't please him, he was, you know, he's very uh, quick on the trigger finger. He was, he would curse you. And that's something that's very prominent in these texts, blessings and curses. And uh, so Durvasa was notorious for cursing people that, you know, I don't know, brought in his lunch late or something, or burned the rice or whatever it was. So, so when the king, when King Kunti Boja heard that, um, Dervas is coming to town. It was, oh, a great sage. Oh, my God. You know, Dervasa. So, Kunti, this young girl Kunti, was very beautiful and had a very sweet temperament, was famous for her devotion to her elders. She took great pleasure in serving her elders. And therefore, the king said to his daughter, can you take care of Dervasa? Sorry, dear, but can you take care of Nervasa? So she agreed, and she served him so nicely, this frightening yogi. She served him so nicely and uh, that he, he, was, he was really touched. He was really moved by it. And by his own yoga power, he could see that this girl will have some difficulty in her life. And therefore, he gave her this boon. He gave her a, a mandala, this powerful technique by which she could call a god to her. And he kind of, maybe, you know, he was a renowned sage. Maybe, he, you know, it was, a, it was a little awkward for him. He didn't explain clearly enough that what he meant was call a god who would then give her a child. And he thought, you can call a god, and he thought, it's obvious what I'm talking about. But for some reason, he just, you know, as a renounced uh, sage, I'm like, I don't want to get into details. So he gave her this, he gave her this mantra, and then he left. And so Kunti had this powerful thing, and she was kind of curious. She was a young girl, you know, like 13 or 14 years old. 
kind of curious, like, God, I wonder how this works. And so one day she was uh, standing on the balcony in, in, in her quarters in the palace looking up at the sun. And of course, everyone knew that the god of the sun is extremely handsome and luminous and all that. You know, sort of like a super guy. So she thought, she was just a child. Well, I mean, see how this thing works here. So she thought she called the sun just to see you know, how it works. So she called the sun, and then he actually came from the sky right into her room, the, the god of the sun. And, of course, she didn't expect all this. I mean, she knew she called the sun, but she didn't think it was really like she called the sun. So then he came and sort of indicated to her, well, when do we begin? And... And when she understood what he meant, she said, uh, I think I got the wrong number. <laughs> so then, um, the son, Surya, Surya informed her that by the power of the mantra, I have to act. This mantra is very powerful, and I too have to act. And uh, as happens in, in, in many cases, he again had the power to make her physiologically a virgin. Although that didn't really help her emotionally because she had this baby and she was a young unmarried girl. And even, I mean, when I was growing up, uh, I remember back in the 50s that uh, for a quote-unquote respectable girl to have a child at that age out of wedlock was an absolute catastrophe. In fact, I remember there was one girl, I was just a kid, like seven, eight years old, there was one girl on our street, and I asked another one day, like, where did so-and-so go? And she said, oh, she went to Arizona, because I was in California. And really? Yeah, she'll be back in about nine months. So, so anyway, for Kunti, this was an absolute catastrophe. And she, she panicked. She was, I mean, emotionally, she simply could not deal with it. She was a, you know, a highly protected girl, and so extremely innocent, pure, and, and, and she just couldn't even begin to deal with it emotionally. She didn't, and what she told her father, well, Dad, I, I have a kid, but it's, I, I'm actually a virgin, and, and it's a son. So she, she couldn't deal with it. And therefore, in a story reminiscent of the Old Testament, she decided that she had no choice but to give up this child, and so she put the child in a basket and placed it in the river. Now, just like uh, in the Bible story, when Moses was placed in the basket, and then his sister Miriam was sent along to make sure that, you know, the fish didn't eat the kid, or to make sure that the kid actually survived. And so uh, Kunti must have made some arrangement like that, and uh, the child was placed, anyway, on the river, that was, uh, I think the Jehovah River. It was Kunti, Kingdom of Kunti Boj. Anyway, one of the rivers. And so, and, and the child was taken by a very pious, very good-hearted couple. Uh, the father's name was um, Adi, because you know, Adi something. And uh, the, the mother was Rata. So, and he was raised. From infancy, from his birth, he was raised by that, and no one knew that this was actually Kunti's child. And that child, of course, will come back and be one of the main figures in Mahabharata. And all. 
So, so that's Kunti. So again, just like Satyavati, everyone thinks she's some sweet young. Well, she is a sweet young girl, and no one knows about this. And so now she's, it's several, you know, a few years have passed. It's time for her Swayamvara, and Pandu goes down to compete for her. What's interesting about this story is because when these Swayamvaras, usually the fight breaks out, so the princes are just like really passionate, really proud. Even someone wins the princess, he kind of has to fight his way out of the ceremony. And uh, but Pandu shows up, and everybody else sort of steps back. He was sort of like, even physically, he was kind of like intimidating. He, he was a really strong guy. And, and he went up, and Kunti chose him. Kunti chose him, and everybody else said, all the other princes this time said, well, that's nice. Because no one wanted to fight with Pandu. So it, it was sort of a unique, remarkable event that uh, no one wanted to uh, challenge him. And so he took Kunti back. There's another very interesting point, which is, um, what I've done is take the Mahabharata text and just try to think, in addition to sort of reading it through the original language and all that, just try to think about it as a historian. And if you plot the points on a map, what you would find is that when Pandu went south to the king of Kunti Boja to claim Kunti, uh, he would have passed through Mathura. And there was one gentleman, one prince living in Mathura at that time, who was very prominent in the story, and that's Kangsa. Kangsa uh, was also from the other dynasty. Uh, he was Krishna's uncle. He was Krishna's uncle. And Pandu and Kamsa were contemporaries. Kamsa, in the very near future, once Pandu is no longer in the world, and you'll see what happens to Pandu, is going to actually usurp the throne, imprison his own father, and begin to persecute his own dynasty. You know, the typical thing, you see this very clearly in the history of the Mughal dynasty, where, uh, someone will take power and basically kill all his brothers, kill all his cousins, and, you know, don't have you them for good luck because they may cause trouble. So, uh, so Kansa is, and again, as I explained earlier, Kam, who is Kansa? He's Kalanemi. He was the one who first attacked Vishnu in the battle after the churning of the milk ocean. And, and when, when Vishnu, when the gods and the, when the Asuras and Asuras were fighting, and the Asuras, the bad guys were winning, Vishnu showed up, and what's interesting is that when Vishnu showed up back much earlier in, in, in those other worlds, Vishnu didn't come and attack anyone. He just showed up, more or less to say, like, you know, we have to settle this peacefully. And then the Asuras, true to form, attacked him, attacked Vishnu, and the first one, the one who hated Vishnu the most, was Kalanemi. This same Kalanemi then has now taken birth as Kamsa. He lives in Mathura under his father, Ugrasena, for now. And for now, he's not acting because Pandu is too powerful. So it's interesting to imagine that Pandu must have met uh, Kamsa because they're both kings and there's even family ties and so on and so forth. In any case, so Pandu marries Kunti and comes back to Hastinapur and then there's the desire to have one more... Uh, they, they want, want, uh, Bijan wants him to have one more wife because one of the reasons for this was it was it was absolutely essential for the preservation of the dynasty to guarantee they got enough sons and so on and so forth. Otherwise, you could actually, like we've already seen with Vijayanagara uh, and Chitrangada, it could actually threaten the, the, the political and social stability.
about co-wives. Uh, it was never really that successful. And uh, we have linguistic, there's, all, there's um, historical and linguistic evidence of this. First, linguistic evidence, I'll end with this, because time's almost up. The word for co-wife in Sanskrit is sa-patni. Patni means wife, and sa is like English co, like co-wife, sa-patni. And so the same word, you just change one letter and make it a masculine word, sapatna, and it means in Sanskrit, enemy. <coughs> enemy, or rival. So, uh, and we have all kinds of stories. The whole Ramayana, you, you know, the Ramayana, the whole problem, the whole disaster, and all, everything was because of polygamy. Because of Kaikeyi, her jealousy of, you know. So the whole problem was, was polygamy, and there, and there are actually many stories ancient texts of uh, polygamy leading to all kinds of troubles, including infanticide in the case of uh, Chitraketu in the Eighth Canto of Bhagavatam, uh, Goa's murdering an infant, and um, it's, all kind of, it's all kinds of problems. But it, it gets into the issue of what was the Vedic sort of, you could say, um, strategy for legislation. And in other words, what things should be legal, what things should be illegal, what things should simply be left to good customs. The Greeks talked about this as husus and nomus, the sense of nature and law. What things should actually be legislated? For example, in America, they tried prohibition, uh, outlawing liquor, and it was a disaster. Although they're still doing it in the case of other drugs, and the same disaster has created this huge international criminal uh, cartel, which you know causes all kinds of problems. But anyway, so. The Vedic attitude often was very real-world, realistic, like certain people are going to do certain things and so try to somehow keep it within the law and don't create laws which no one's going to follow, which actually weakens the rule of law. So anyway, no time to talk about that now, but to, uh, to, to end here, uh, Bhij, uh, Bhijma is going to choose another wife for Pandu, a co-wife, and uh, from these two wives will be 